Hennessy Files podcast series. Proudly presented by Aloha Surf Manly. Well, folks, welcome into the first ever Hennessy Files podcast. Today, I'm delighted to sit down and kick off the series with former world tour surfer Richie Lovett. Richie has lived the highs and lows of what comes with being a professional athlete. I'm stoked to be able to sit down and tell his story today. So, welcome on in, legend. Thanks, Dimmy. Stoked to be here, mate. Stoked to be on what is the first of uh, the Hennessy Files. Is that the name? Is that yeah, what, the what you're running Files? with? Yeah, that's what I'm running with, mate. So. Let's talk, first of all, the current world uh, crisis. Like, it's been a pretty amazing six six weeks. How have you gone about your life? Um, wait, we, we've adjusted pretty well, to be honest. And um, when I say we, I mean, you know, the immediate family, the wife, Amanda, and two kids, Lennox and Mabel. Um, I guess the biggest adjustment for us has been having the kids at home from school. That's been the biggest challenge. Um, Amanda's still lucky enough to be working so she's working full-time um and i'm doing i guess contract based work and i and i'm able to work from home um you know i'm working for a a couple of different uh brands and companies so i do have the ability to 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 work from home and have that um uh and have that happening but to layer the the actual education of the kids on top of that's been uh, a real challenge and um Mate, to be honest, where we live on the northern beaches here, I, I, I reckon we're probably one of the the least affected in terms of our natural day-to-day because we've still been able to surf, we've still been able to access the beach and our, our beach lifestyle that we have on this part of the coast, it really hasn't had too much of a hiccup, you know. Uh, and we're very lucky that that's happened. But, you know, I, I certainly can um, sympathise uh, with so many other different countries and communities that have been affected uh, in a really significant way. Like thinking about, you know, all my friends over in, in Europe who are, you know, they're 55 days in lockdown, like no access to the beach, no nothing, basically not allowed outside. And that is, you know, that's real difficult. So we've been lucky. Yeah, we have been lucky. And when you look at the uh, total deaths around the world, incredible 264,000 as it sits right now with over nearly just under four million four million cases like and when you think about you know case that places that as surfers you guys go on tour like in the top five you know stats wise the u.s spain and france all sit in that bubble so i mean realistically it's it's very sad but we are pretty much lucky in australia really yeah absolutely um and you know good to see that uh, well, it seems like things are turning right now, which is just such a positive um, for so many countries around the world. Beaches are opening up uh, where they were once closed. Because um, I think as surfers, and, and, you know, I guess this is what this whole thing comes down to, you know, we're, I'm looking at this through a surfer's eye and we look at it as sort of beach lifestyle uh, people. And, you know, that ocean is so important to us. You know, that time in the ocean, it's... it's um, it's real therapeutic um and when that gets taken away from you and and i can speak firsthand i've had so many big stints out of the water um that it it really does take its toll on you so i you know it's it's sad that that, you know we haven't been able to access the beach as freely as we want we would like to as a former world tour surfer you are still very much involved in the sport in fact 
Friday the 13th of March, pretty weird when you think about that, that was the day it all went down. That was the day that basically WSL, uh, through the hierarchy, came through, were at an event in Manly, the first ever Challenger Series event, and they basically shut the World Tour down. I think that uh, Starkey and all his staff from WSL Australasia did a great job yeah. in finishing that event under a lot of pressure. But as a former World Tour surfer, how difficult would that have been for all those guys just... They were about to go to New Zealand and uh, it all just stopped. Yeah, it was – I'm just thinking back to that day and we were both working on that event, as you said, and, you know, Starkey was pacing around. You could see Renato just um, – you know, he had a bit of a frown and some concerned look on his faces. So we knew something was up and every, there was so much speculation around and it was really – the world was just really starting to ramp up to the whole COVID thing. And, um, you know, there were sports just clipping their their associations, their plans, calendar years, uh, left, right and centre. So it was, you knew it was coming. Um, I didn't think it was going to come that sharp and fast. Uh, like I was, I had a ticket booked to go to New Zealand, go to the next Challenger event and do some commentary there. And it, and it all just stopped. So, um, you know, for me as I guess an employee, of the of the WSL it was weird but as a as an athlete it would have been like it's it just halts any momentum for those guys that are already up and running and already competing um those guys that have uh got a bunch of points and established already and, and are getting their year going um fortunately for the CT level guys you know nothing had really started yet sure they'd been doing their training um you know getting all their equipment ready things like that and uh you know the they never really got on the blocks to get a false start they never even got there so um i think most of them probably uh while a little bit upsetting just went you know what this is just the way it is we're going to have a good at least six months at home uh, let's make the most of it because let's face it, you know, it's a gypsy lifestyle. You don't get to spend a lot of time at home. Um, so I reckon a lot of them were probably a bit relieved and looked at it as a bit of a, you know, this is great. I get a forced holiday with, with my family. So, um, yeah, you know, and, and it is just, you got to look at it with a positive lens in, in that regard. So let's take a journey back in time, Rich. From the beginning, you grew up in Mossman, as a youngster, you should ride your push bike or get a bus down to the beach. Manly was your closest beach. And once you were part of that community, who were your idols in Manly? Because, I mean, it has a rich history of surfing, you know, and world-class athletes. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, we're very fortunate uh, to grow up in a beach or to grow up at a beach, I should say, that, that is just populated with so many amazing surfers, especially through that. 90s period you know um the late 80s and 90s period it was you know pro surfing was just on a on its just a heater of a rise through uh in terms of a world sport so um to answer your question uh like barton was definitely up there for me he was probably my lead influence um we had similarities in that we both grew up in mossman we both and just to paint that picture manly is uh i guess the first beach on the northern beaches of sydney mossman is a suburb about 20 to 20 minutes half an hour in a car um back inland it's a quite an affluent suburb um and you know i sort of 
I guess you could say I grew up with a with a silver spoon in my mouth, but I, it's you know we never really wanted for anything. We you know we had a dad. We always had toys and and stuff going on. But I mean, I was drawn to the beach at such an early age, and I wanted to be part of that lifestyle and be part of that community. Um, so yeah, I, I I took similarities to sort of Barton and and his career path. Um, it was something that I wanted to to follow in and emulate. Um, Bainey was another one uh, who I they were two of the most successful guys coming out of the beach at that point in time in the 90s um, Barton had got his world title by that stage Bainey was sort of going for world titles um, and then there was another layer under that uh, Justin Cook, Ryan Allegich who were, who were more in my peer group um, we did a lot of travelling together um, and then you, you kind of lay on top of that Stuart Entwizzle who was a, a great friend of ours uh may he rest in peace but um you know pam burridge and all these other there was just so such a hotbed of talent coming out of coming lane lane i mean well lane was my uh elk as well you know she was in my year we sort of grew up at a really similar time um she obviously went on to have amazing success and and winning multiple world titles so um you know where it was competitive and that competitive uh, sort of atmosphere on the beach definitely helped me get to, uh, I guess, the levels that I that eventually reached. Okay, coming through, uh, I always believe that during that era you're talking about where the 90s, um, the ACC, the importance yeah. of the ACC back in those days, there was so many good Aussies getting on tour and all these guys came through that development program. The ACC, tell us a little bit about that series and what it meant to you as a surfer. Well, yeah. Well, at the time, there, there was a little bit of a uh, vacancy in terms of that competition structure in Australia. Sure, we had the we had the club structure, and you had that club level competition, but there was a gap between um, doing a domestic tour and then going onto the world tour. And at that stage, it, it wasn't the WCT. It was, it was there was a trials, and then there was a top thirty two, and it was structured a little different. So. Um, you know, the ACC got put in place and uh, I felt like it came off the back of the Queensland Championship circuit that Rabbit started up. So I went and competed up there and, and, and really was just, I, I couldn't get enough competition at that point. So I went up there, ended up, um, ended up winning that and like Neil Purchase Jr. was probably my biggest rival through that period. And then the ACC started. So that was a really exciting time for all of us guys like, you know, Jake Patterson and Nathan Webster and, and Luke Kitchen, all these guys that were um, really looking for that competition and that, that little springboard that we needed to get onto the tour. So I did the ACC for a couple of years. I ended up winning it, uh, which was, you know, it was, wow. a, was a huge thing for me to win it at that point. Yeah. Um, that was the real kind of, I guess, coming of age and I'm going to be a pro surfer moment for me. Um, I ended up winning the Bells Trials that year, that same year. Uh, which was a really cool moment. I got into the, that was my first big tour event when I got, when I won that and I got a, a wild card into that and I got absolutely whooped when I, when I, I think I had Harrow in, uh, in my, my uh, man on man heat and he just sent me packing. So uh, I clearly wasn't ready for it at that point. But like you said, the caliber of surfer who came through that series, when I look back, guys like Wilsey and Hitcho and uh, Hog and, and Jake and Tommy Witts and yourself, it just, the grounding gave you guys that confidence that, you know, that, that next level wasn't too far away. 
Yeah, it was it was the perfect stepping stone onto the what would end up being the world qualifying series. Um, and we also formed a lot of really cool friendships back then too. You know, that was that was the start of of that real next Aussie wave of of surfing domination that that ended up happening for a lot of years in there. And um, you know, and even the older guys like Glenn Pringle and and a bunch of other crew like that you know they were able to also compete at that domestic level um and some of those guys even had families um you know back then too so it was the perfect springboard but you know there was only so much you could go there you yeah. and it was another level once you got on tour it was another level altogether your career was starting to develop nicely you were sponsored by hot tuna at the time they had a pretty sick team of up-and-coming surfers you were doing a lot of trips and then you guys headed over to Indonesia. Talk us through that because it's a pretty wild story. You know, it, it, uh, so just to kind of set the canvas for this one, um, I was sponsored by Hot Tuna at the time and uh, they'd formulated a pretty cool team. There was a whole bunch of us, uh, Richard Marsh, um, you know, Shane Herring, Neil Purchase Jr., uh, who else? There was, there was a full list of us, um, Robbie Bain, and we had organized this trip. We were, we were filming a movie for, for Hot Tuna and we were over in Bali. We'd been in Bali for a week. And then the call was made, we we're gonna to go to G-Land because there was a significant swell about to hit. And um, we, got, uh, we, got all the, we got everything sorted out. And I remember the night before we got on the boat to go over because for anyone who hasn't been to G-Land, Back in those days, it was it was a bit of a mission to get there from Bali. You know, you had to get a, a BMO to the end of Bali, then a ferry over to Java, and then another. There was just this, you know, long, long trail of travel that you had to do, and then eventually you get a boat out from the Grudgingen village across to the surf camp, and it's remote. It's on the eastern tip of Java. We're talking out in the middle of you know nowhere. You're right in the elements. So the night before, the whole team decided to go out and get on mushies that that night. <laughs> which was which for um a bit of a straighty 180 which i was back then kids don't do that at uh yeah don't i'm not endorsing that by any means but um you know i was sort of the designated guy that was gonna look after everyone if they started seeing you know purple blobs walking down the street so um the boys did that and that was pretty funny uh it was a uh a pre- <laughs> quite an amusing night um but anyway we got up that morning and neil purchase got up that morning and i was staying in a room with neil and we were we were going to be teaming up in our in our uh hut when we got to g-land and he goes boys i'm pulling out of the trip i'm not coming to g-land and we all just went what are you talking about man like we're about to go to g-land you're a goofy footer for one this is like wouldn't this be a dream trip for you and he goes mate my missus just rang me and she said she's got a real bad feeling about this I really want you to come home. And he goes, are you guys cool with it? I'm just going to tell Richard Meldrum, who was the owner of Hot Tuna at the time, that, you know, I'm a bit crook and I need to go home. We are just like, yeah, man, we'll back you. Get out of here, more ways for us. So anyway, he pissed off home. We did the, we did the trip out to G-Land, got there at about two in the afternoon. It was kind of pumping, four to five feet. We all had a surf and then, you know, a couple of beers at the, at the main hut, which is a which is the restaurant. So that's up on these big stilts. You know, you're probably sort of 25 feet off the ground up on this sort of uh, upper level. And then there's all these little huts scattered around the camp. And a lot of them are right on the, on the edge of the foreshore there. Um, 
and there's these so part of the reef called speedy's reef that's the end section yep and there's a couple of huts that sit right down in front of speedy's they're right on the sand and as we were taking the boat in dog richard marsh goes let's get the speedy's huts they're the ones you want so you can just wake up look outside see the perfect reef break and get out there so i was like yeah no worries so simon law also came along he was sponsored by hot uh by uh cooter lines at the time uh he was in a hut with dog the two owners of of cooter lines were in the hut next to him and then i was in a hut by myself there was only three huts down there so being a little bit of a clean freak and ocd uh tendencies i've cleaned out my little hut and i've got everything all set up and uh you know after a few beers i they basically shut the camp down. Everything's run on a generator back then. And it's pitch black. So you go to bed, lights out, and there really is nothing but the, you know, the only light is from the moon and the stars. So, you know, first night in the jungle, I'm, I'm sort of tossing and turning a bit. And then I keep waking up because I keep hearing all these animals going just batshit crazy. And I'm going, man, is this like normal? And I just thought, oh, okay, it's just part of being on the edge of a jungle. And I woke up a couple of times and then I woke up again. It was around two in the morning and the noises kind of had stopped, but there was this really low decibel rumbling noise that was happening and I couldn't work out what it was. At first I went, oh, maybe that's a plane. Is that a plane going overhead? And it just kept getting louder and louder and louder. And then the ground started to kind of shake a bit. And then I was like, man, something's not right here. And I, you know, you know, when you kind of wake up, it's, you're not, you're not thinking with clarity at that point. So the ground's starting to rumble. This noise is getting super loud. And I'm thinking, man, a plane is about to come down and just take us out. So within a couple of seconds after that thought, I, my hut gets picked up and it was like I'd been hit by a train. Wow. I felt water all around me. My hut disintegrated around me. I had like a mosquito net in there and I, had, I was on this like little foam mattress that, was, that kind of wrapped around me and, and sort of cocooned me for a couple of seconds. And then that just all just got washed away. And then I was just under this torrent of water um, getting driven back into the, into the jungle, which was a really surreal experience because... Could you... Did you know where you were? Could you work out what was going on? I, my, first thought, I, my first thought was my family because I thought at that moment, I thought I was dead. I was going, this is it. This is the end. Because I, I clicked on pretty quick. I was like, we must be getting wiped out here by a tidal wave tsunami. Um, and then I, something kind of clicked in, just having that surfer mentality, that survival kind of instinct kicked in and I pretended it was almost like a heavy wipeout, went into a bit of a ball tried to stay somewhat calm and it was really turbulent water and I was trying to get a couple of breaths here and there where I could uh, and this lasted for it seemed like minutes but it was probably you know a minute or, or 30 odd 45 seconds something like that um, of just getting sort of poleaxed back into the jungle and it's thick jungle you can't penetrate this stuff um, and then after a while you know the power of the wave just started to abate and then um, I remember I was my legs were kind of stuck and I couldn't get above the water and I had to had to rip them out. I was sort of jarred between a couple of trees, um, and then I, I ripped them out, got up above the water, and I, I remember being up about chest deep in water and then looking around and just going, "Wow, 
like it was a trippy experience. There was all this foam and noises and sticks crackling. And could just, you hear the boys at that stage? Where nah, was everyone else? You couldn't hear anyone. I couldn't hear anyone. All I could hear, I could sort of hear a, scr- a couple of screams. Um, but at that point, I was just going, is this, is this water going to go away? Like what happens now? What do I do? And I was doing a bit of a sense check of my body going, you know, have I got a Injuries. branch sticking out of me or, you know, what's going on? And I, I was in pain because I'd been obviously beat up pretty bad and scratched up. Um, and then after a little while, the water started to go withdraw back into the ocean. Um, and that's kind of how I knew, okay, well, that's the way back to the beach. And uh, once, as the wave kind of withdrew, I, I sort of went with it and kind of went on another bit of a ride. And then once it totally had gone away, um, I, I just sort of thought to myself, I got to just keep heading to walk back towards the beach and try and find someone. You know, is dog all right? Is Laura all right? Where is someone? I just wanted to be in company of someone. Um, and then I could hear dog calling out my name. He was like, Rich, you know, we're over here. And then he came and got me and then we huddled together and we did a bit of a, you know, is everyone okay? Has everyone got their limbs? Um, and then as we were kind of checking in on each other, another wave came in. Um, so we all grabbed onto this big tree that was there and we all held onto each other and then that wave kind of hit. It was nowhere near as big as the other one. It was almost like a little after wave. Um, and then once that wave retracted, we made our way back up to the main camp. So the main camp's on a bit of a like almost like this little mini cliff. It's like a little rise and it's set back in the jungle a little bit. So the whole front of the camp got wiped out, but the main part where you have your, your meals in that restaurant, the big structure, that was okay. So we kind of rocked up to pandemonium. There were people, you know, trying to find their gear and, you know, looking after their wounds and things like that. So, I, you know, I pretty much came up with a, a pair of boxer shorts that were kind of hanging off me and I had nothing. Everything had been washed away. So um, we were all, we, everyone in the camp went up to the main main restaurant area. Uh, we kind of licked our wounds, so to speak. And um, I remember just vomiting up all this seawater and kind of going into shock. And I've actually got photos that Bosco took of me just on this wooden bench, just kind of tripping out that it was uh, what was going on. And it was this real weird weird scene and we all just no one really slept that night we waited for the sun to come up and then we went got out of there check well it took us a couple of days to get out of there because all the boats in the whole of the grudgigan bay where you normally get a boat out of there got washed away so they eventually they eventually sent a boat from bali to come and get us um but we still had to get over to the to the grudgigan village so that we could get a bimo and and do the trek home um and i and you know, I just had borrowed gear off people that didn't lose everything. And uh, they luckily, <laughs> the local crew there, they were, they uh, they found my, because I had this sort of briefcase with all my passports and tickets and stuff. And I was like, the last thing, I just want to go home, man. Because at that point, I couldn't walk. My legs got so infected within a couple of days that I, I they had to wheel, they had to carry me down a wheelbarrow to the, to the boat. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, yeah, they found my passport. They came running down. They were like, oh, we found your briefcase. So um, I got that. We, we went straight from, we went straight to the airport. They put us on a flight and we went home. And I remember rocking up at uh, back, I was, I was living with Justin Cook at the time down on Pitwater Road at Manly. And he, they'd, there'd sort of been these whispers of what had happened over there. And I rocked up and I'd, I sort of knocked on the thing and I still had seaweed hanging out of my hair. And he's like, dude, I didn't think it was, <laughs> I didn't think that was actually what happened, but it clearly happened to you. So I'm just sort of 
trying to get that visual of you getting wheeled back to a boat. Oh, dude. Because you're not short of an injury or two. (sighs) You are pretty, you know, fluent in that little adventure. But, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty pretty heavy story because had there been any, you know, prior uh, tsunamis in that region and have you been back there since? Have been back there and I I learnt that it was 17 years before that 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 had another tsunami um but yeah it had been it had been a while and uh funnily enough you know i made the tour a, a year or two later and then um we went back there for oh, the right. for the gland event. event yeah so we went back there a couple of times for the for the gland comp and and it just so happened that whenever that comp was running it was on the anniversary uh june 2nd yeah that and, and we would all you know, dog would be there and, and Bainey and a whole bunch of us that were there at the time and we'd all just sit up and have a couple of drinks and cheers to still being here. There you go. Now, you then embarked on your QS tour basically and mm. uh, trying to qualify it. Now, reading in the book, you, you spend a lot of time discussing that, um, that during that time after the tsunami that things weren't going your way you were getting i had a look at your your ratings and the way that you actually grew through your career but in the book you say that you started to use that experience as an excuse yeah. for your losses is that would that be correct uh absolutely you know um i think at that point i was i was because i'd come from succeeding a lot at the australian level at a domestic level and then i went on this on the world's tour and didn't really get the results that I thought that I was going to get um I, I wasn't ready to face up to the fact that I still had some work to do and I had to figure out what was going on and I'd, I I looked at the tsunami incident as a as an easy excuse and um you know I was like oh you know I'm not succeeding because of this event and it's still sort of affecting me and I've had a bit of a rough trot and and it it was taking away from the fact that I needed to actually just ha- have a good hard look at myself and go, what aren't I doing right? Am I not training right? Am I not riding the right? Whatever it was at the time. Um, and it wasn't until I sat down, um, Andrew Downs, who was running Insight Surfboards at the time, and I was I was kind of crying poor to him and I was, and he goes, mate, that happened then. This is now. It's time to get on with it. You know, work your shit out. Let's go. What's the problem? And start digging in, man, because if you're going to go through life coming up with excuses, then you're never going to get anywhere. And I just needed that little shove off the ledge to to have a good look at myself, and I did that. Um, and then I I turned things around relatively quickly within a within the second. So I, the first year I'd kind of failed miserably, I guess, on the world tour, and then the second year I qualified. But I still struggled to get the results in that second year, and I was up against the ropes. And then I I finally did it. You were travelling that time with two guys who are your very good mates with Snake, Jake Patterson, who I, who I consider one of the most dogged sort of uh, competitors out there. there. There is just no give in the way that Jake served his career. And then you had the fluency and the style of Nathan Noodles Webster from Narrabeen. Those guys were starting to make waves and you were lacking a little bit behind. Let's talk about the year that you qualified because in the book you talk about you were travelling with the boys. You basically knew going in Hawaii that they were they were basically qualified, yep. and um, and you needed a miracle because when I say a miracle, I mean talent's one thing, but there is very very limited pieces of history where a surfer has gone over 
to the mecca of you know, of our industry, and that's Hawaii, and succeeded. You did that. Tell us about that experience, what it meant to you, and how it changed your life. Uh, yeah. So that I'd had a couple of results in that second year on the World Qualifying Series. It, I wasn't consistent like Jake and Nathan were, um, and they quite they, they easily nailed it. They'd qualified before we even got to Hawaii, as you said, and. You know, I was just that. In a, that alone was fr- a frustrating point because you know I didn't want to miss out on going on the tour. These guys were going to do it, and they were already talking about Snapper and G Land and all these other amazing spots that they were going to go. And I was like, man, what? You know, I've just got to do this. And so um, we went to Jake and I went to Mexico. Um, before that, before we went to Mexico, we were in Brazil, and I got I actually got the measles. And then, uh, so I, I kind of dipped out on a, on a big event there. And then we got to Mexico and then I got a result. Jake got the measles <laughs> and then we went to Hawaii. Um, and then it was Haliva. It was time to surf Haliva. So I basically needed to win the event to make the tour. And um, as you sort of touched on, you know, winning an event in Hawaii especially back then it was it was kind of reserved for the Tom Carrolls and the Tom Currens and the you know those amazing surfers Bartons and all those guys that are that are at the very top of the sport you know and and you know at that era it was Kelly he was you know busting down doors and that whole um, momentum generation they were really leading the charge there so um, I was staying with Nathan and we were staying in Mark Fu's house um, at Waimea and I'd gotten through the event. I'd I'd gotten a couple of boards made by Carl Sharper, and it was the first year that I'd really gotten some boards from a Hawaiian shaper. And so I was starting to feel comfortable there. Uh, I still had my quiver of Greg Webber's that I was riding, and um, I'd gotten through a couple of rounds. And Nathan took it upon himself to get me as far in that event as he could, and he was propping me up like no one's business. He was like, "Dude, you can do this." just take it heat by heat i've seen you surf out there you're as good as anyone out there you're gonna you can do it just believe that you can do it and somehow in there we had the thought of shaving my head i was like i'm gonna take away all distractions you know at that at that sort of you know pretty boy era that i (laughs) i was gonna i was gonna say knowing you like i do i couldn't imagine you really wanting to get rid of those long locks and i needed that jolt i needed to take i needed to get some mongrel basically and I thought shaving my head just might be a, a, a little thing that can steer me in the right direction. So I shaved my head, started drawing these four-leaf clovers on my board because I thought, you know, I need some luck. <laughs> you know, I've had some bad luck and I need some good luck. Um, so I got, a cu- I got through a couple of rounds and then this gigantic swell turned up on the, on the charts. And Haliever traditionally happens around Thanksgiving time. Um, so the the bulk of the swell hit right at Thanksgiving. And it must have been, Haliever must have been a solid 10 to 15 feet, which if you've surfed Haliever, it's this, you know, it's like a, it's like a right rip bowl, but on steroids. Uh, and on its day when it's big, I, I'm, I'm going to call it one of the heaviest waves on the North Shore. So Thanksgiving Day, we had the bright idea that we were going to paddle out. Nathan and and I was with Kai Fitzgerald at the time as well and they went look if we can go out there now 
anything that's going to happen after that is going to be kind of minor. And I was shit myself. Took the biggest board I had. We all took the biggest boards we had. We got down there and we just saw this one figure out there way out in the ocean surfing hell even by himself and it was Tom Curran. And we were like, whoa, dude, this is a crazy moment. So we kind of went, okay, if he's out there, we got to do it. So we waxed up and then the lifeguard came down as we were about to paddle out. And he just go, he was sort of, you know, put on the Hawaiian voice. He was like, you guys, you're not going out there, brah. And we're like, no, no, we're going, we're going, we're going. He's going, well, don't, ex-, he basically said, don't expect you to get saved if something happens to you. So anyway, we paddled out. I think Nathan got one wave. I got maybe two waves and then came in just because it was so big and I just felt out of my comfort zone. But in doing that at the same time, but just riding those couple of waves and going out in that huge, huge ocean put me in the right place for the following day when it was 10 to 12 foot and kind of pumping. And so I had had Jeff Booth and Victor Rebus and I think Poncho Sullivan or something in my next heat. So it was a pretty stacked heat. You know, I knew kind of Vicky, I could probably get him out of the way, but I knew Poncho and Jeff Booth were going to be real hard ones to beat. So I just went, you know what? I just need two or three waves at the time. Paddled out, concentrated on what I was doing, got through that, ended up winning that heat, which I didn't think I was going to win. I won that heat. And then Nathan was like, told you so, man, you can do this. Next thing I know, I'm in the quarterfinals. Next thing I know, I've made the semis. Next thing I know, I'm in the final and I'm going... Did you stop then and go, wow? Yeah, at that moment, I was like going, holy crap. Like, I might actually be able to pull this off. And I knew I had had this amazing board. I was riding a 7.2 that Greg Weber had shaped for me and I just felt I could do anything. It felt like a 6.2. And uh, it was still solid. It was solid for the whole event. And uh, had Ross Williams and I think God, maybe Kalani or someone. Else. I can't remember exactly who was in the final because um, I, I actually made the final twice there, <laughs> which is I'm stoked about. Um, but man, I, you know, half an hour later I came in and the boys were like just going, you won this thing, you won this thing and picked me up and chaired me up to the stage. And at, at that moment there, I knew I'd qualified. That moment there... My whole belief structure in in myself kind of shifted. And I thought, you know what? I actually do deserve to be here. I can mix it with this crew. And I've actually just won a freaking event in Hawaii, which people go through their whole career trying to achieve. And I've done it as a rookie. is is pretty amazing. So, you know, I gave myself a bit of a pat on the back there. And uh, I got into the pipe trials that year. Got licked. Um but got pumped. Home, got pumped, but it was a good experience, man. And I went home with this gigantic trophy that still sits at the front door of my house. Um, and at that stage, you know, I, it, the Qantas crew just plopped it on the seat next to me and brought me a beer and said, congratulations, we'll see you in Sydney. The best thing about that story was that in the book, you, you say that, uh, you know, you know, in Hawaii, how they introduce everyone before the final. Yeah. And they'll go through <laughs> the names and they call out your name, Richie Lovett and... Everyone sort of looked around and goes, who's this guy? Yeah, who is this guy? You know, <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, and a couple of the Aussie boys were sort of going, yeah, yeah, but everyone else was like, yeah, okay. We don't know who this guy is, but he obviously fluked it to get this far. But So then you're on tour. You're, you're consistently, uh, you know, trying to break through, trying to requalify, and I know how difficult that can be because it's such a roller coaster ride when it comes to, uh, you know, sitting on that bubble. You always seem to be able to back it up on the QS and then – 
it all happened one day. Your breakthrough victory and knowing the way you surf and when I think back on it now, uh, I remember being at home and you, when you won trestles and to me that was like just a, an unbelievable moment for the beach. You know, you definitely look at some events and you go, I can win that one. Um, and then there are other events where you look and go, I'd be, I'm a slim chance of winning that one. Um, and I'll be the first to say that, you know, it was more the snapper and bells and, and, and trestles and places like that where I, I probably had a better shot at winning. Um, there are not many surfers that surf lowers and go, oh, look, I don't, you know, I don't have a good experience or a good affinity with this wave. But I, I remember the first time I surfed that place and I just went, oh my gosh, this is one of the most fun, rippable waves in the world and i just could not get enough of the joint you know um so from day one i felt really confident out there i felt like i uh, i felt like i could mix it with anyone out there um as opposed to other places like chopu and pipe and you know some other kind of more heavy water spots you know where i felt like the dorians and kelly's and andy's and all those guys i had a bit of an, an advantage over me so um i came into that event uh, I think I'd pretty well qualified on, on the QS that year. So I, I was coming into the back half of the CT with sort of no pressure on me at all. I was with a good crew. I had um, Luke Hitchings and Tommy Wirtz and Jake and we were all kind of hanging together. We had a little posse going and um, uh, the ways were good that year. It was really fun. The, the first half of the event, the ways were, I guess, in the four to five foot range and just super rippable. And I just, I won my first heat. And then just clinically, I guess, marched through into the finals day and quarterfinals time. And uh, I think I had Noxie in the quarters. Then I had uh, Parco in the semis, I think. And then Taj in the final. And I remember, <laughs> I remember going, man, Taj is going to be hard to beat out here. Um his, but, his stats there are incredible. Oh, I, yeah, I stayed there later on in his career when he was at the back end of his career. And the two years I stayed with him, he got a fifth and then he won. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's obviously... That's tailor-made for him. Totally. He's one of the top five surfers out there, for sure. So I knew I was going to be... I knew the only way I was going to beat Taj was to get on better waves and not hold back. And at the start of the heat, I went, I want to get the inside. And I did that. And I just waited for the right wave. I didn't take off because I knew he'd be scrappy. He, he tank, he, Taj can tend to get a little scrappy in heats. And he, he would have been thinking, I've got Rich. All I need to do is just get waves and kind of rip them. And I've got him on toast. And I, I took the other strategy. And I went, I'm going to get the better waves. Do big, try and do bigger turns and kind of out, out perform him that way, outpower him. So the first wave, I just went, if I hold back at all, on this first turn, this is going to set the tone and I didn't. I just hit it as hard as I could and then just banged it all the way to the beach and I, I got an eight, you know, 8.5 or something and I just went, okay, that's one down. I just need one more. And so I just put the pressure on him and I saw Taj starting to get out of his comfort zone. He was getting real scrappy and he was going for all these airs and, and he was getting more frustrated as I was building. So I think I got a six after that. And then I went, okay, now I'm going to wait. I want, an, I want at least another eight. And I just waited it out. And that wave came and then just pounded it. And, uh, you know, got, came in with pocket eights and, and that was it. Job was done. And that was, you know, it, I knew 
I was good enough to win championship events. And I think for four or five years there, I was voted the most underrated surfer because, um, well, once obviously because my rating was never that high and people thought that I should have had a, a high rating. Um, and, you know, I, I just wasn't where people thought I was going to be in my career, I guess. So to get that moment, to get that win, like you said, it was, I sort of did it for the beach. I did it for my family. I did it for my friends. And it was, you know, how the cliche, I hate the cliche, but it was that kind of monkey off the back moment. <laughs> 